to be so focused and so driven by what I wanted to achieve and I trained incredibly hard but I always made sure that I had some separation to what I did I noticed my my best performances and when I was at my best was when I was really happy you know like my life elsewhere was really happy and I had great separation between training which is very consuming to everything else and I think that had a massive impact on why I was able to be so successful. Hello folks and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name's Steve Ingham and it's a pleasure to have you along to this episode in which we're once again exploring some insights, some ideas from the world of high performance. That is, whether you're getting to grips with it for the first time, whether you've been there and done it, or if you're trying to make sense of it, then we think you'll find some interesting ideas here to develop your philosophies, your work and your influences. Or maybe just have a listen and get some inspiration. Now, if you're enjoying these discussions and you fancy supporting us, then it would be amazing if you could leave an honest review on iTunes. It really does help us reach more people and share the messages that we're sharing and exploring even further. Equally, whatever platform you're listening on, whether it's Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube or Radio Public, then please do press subscribe. This episode's guest will need little introduction. Dame Jessica Ennis Hill. For some of you non-Brits, let me briefly do the honours. Jess is triple world champion, Olympic champion, European champion and British record holder in the heptathlon and world indoor champion in pentathlon. Perhaps more significantly, Jess is an icon of British sport and global track and field athletics as much for carrying the weight of expectations of a nation at the London Olympics in 2012. You see, Jess was the face of the Games for 2012. And not every Games has a home favourite that can also produce a landmark performance that captivates the home fans, but also unites everyone from every nation, willing that person on to succeed. But when they do, it is uniquely special. So Michael Johnson in 1996, Kathy Freeman in 2000 will be on a similar par with the expectation that was placed on Jess. So to give you an example, a 4,000 metre portrait of Jess was painted beside the Heathrow Airport runway emblazoned with the message, welcome to our turf. That was the message that greeted every athlete, coach, official, reporter and spectator to the London Olympics. It was a British way of trying to intimidate the opposition. Now, I had the privilege of working with Jess from her junior days all the way to her retirement and still work with her now. But this conversation was a chance to look back on the entirety of her career and reflect and in some cases help each other remember aspects of the journey. So it was great to take a chance to take stock with Jess, but it was equally a dose of what also makes Jess uniquely Jess. What makes her so adored, revered and connected to people is her overwhelming sense of values, egoless sensibility, a grounded kindness and personability. Jess has always had this. She was a joy to work with. And in some ways, it can make you forget when you're sat in front of her chatting just normally that you're in the presence of greatness. One of the greatest female athletes who have ever performed and has done so under the greatest pressures in sport. 
So I wonder if the combination of her talent, her performances and her personal ability is what makes her so unique. So we sat down, had a bit of a reflection and this was framed around the fact it was seven years after the London Games, but also 10 years, that pivotal moment when she stepped on to become world champion. On the podcast, Jess. Hello. Jessica Ennis Hill. <laughs> Dame Jessica Ennis Hill or Jessica Ennis or Jenis. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the various many different names. titles over the years. Hi. Hi. How are we doing? Yeah, really good. Thank you. Good. So it's been ages since we've caught up and mm-hmm. uh, sort of life in retirement, mum now. God, you know, it's, how's, how's it been over the last few years since retirement? Yeah, I mean, obviously lots has changed and it it does seem like quite a long time ago now um that I retired and yeah I've obviously I've got two children now life is busy um lots of different projects going on and yeah life is good but it's very very different to you know three or four years ago so Jess the mum uh who's who's good cop bad cop in 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 the family Is is it Andy or is it you um I suppose Andy's a bit bad cops yeah I I mean I can be quite stern and you know I don't let them run rings around me by any means but yeah I think we have different approaches (laughs) (laughs) finding your identity as a as a mum as well so Jess I'm I'm really uh delighted to have you on but also want to kind of cover go back and and reflect and reminisce a little bit obviously we've worked with each other for years um and and also think about some of the projects that you're now involved in because that's as much that's an interesting lesson in itself of rediscovering and rebuilding a career beyond athletics so um so keen to unpack a lot of that um when when did you realize you were good uh, i mean i don't think there was one moment where i suddenly thought wow I'm I'm good at athletics. I think it was something that just evolved over time. I think a bit of a turning point for me was when I first got my my first GB international. I, was, I think I was about 15, and that was the first time I'd been selected to represent my country and to put on you know my first GB kit, which was a massive massive moment for me. And I said, I suppose at that point I kind of felt that there was a a bigger dream like a bigger world out there it wasn't just about you know um club competitions and English schools it you know it was potentially about world junior championships world championships the Olympics um but yeah very much evolved over time it wasn't one moment where I felt that you know I'm really good at this what about school sports day yeah I mean school sports day was good for me I did enjoy it but I also felt that kind of level of embarrassment as well because everyone expected me to win and to do well so there was always like mixed emotions but yeah I I did enjoy doing athletics at school and athletics became a massive priority and a massive love for me from the start you know every other sport that I did I wasn't that interested in it was always athletics is is my main focus from a very very young age Oh, that's interesting from the point of view of a lot of people talk about throwing themselves into to one sport versus experimenting, trying different sports, lots of variety, mm. 
but you found your passion early in that sense. Yeah, so I definitely found athletics early, but I suppose from another respect, I, I, you know, experimented with different events within one sport. Mm. So I didn't just find one event and, you know, that was me for the next 20 years. It was very much, I'll try lots of different events within athletics, but it was always athletics that was my main focus. You know, I played a bit of basketball at school, but I was never that bothered about any other sport. I can imagine you playing basketball, actually. <laughs> just that that uh, annoying person that just has got springs. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually not very good at basketball. I was so small back then. And, yeah, I remember just not not enjoying it 100% and thinking, yeah, this is quite a tough sport, to be honest. When you're that small, it was it was quite hard. So I, I, remember, I remember watching you train for the first time. Um, I, can't, I think maybe 2005, something like that. And Tony had brought me in. So obviously, Tony Minicelli, your coach, uh, I'd worked with his wife, Nicola, Mm -hmm. in 2000, 2001 on the bobsleigh team. That's how I got to know Tony. And then, coincidentally, the BBC programme that Louise Bloor was was on, uh, Tony was coaching Louise, that she won. And then he said, oh, I've got this other kid, she's quite good. I think she's going to be. I think she's going to be uh, uh, need some support. What do you think? And I come up watching you train, and you're doing a running session. And I was thinking, yeah, she's, okay. she's quite quick. I see a lot of quick people. Mm. And then it's when you did the jumping. I just thought, okay, well, right, okay. There's some that when you're doing a high jump session, it's just bam, and you just hit the ground, and then suddenly you just took off. I thought, ah, right, okay. There's something special here. Yeah. That that quality of of, of being real standout spring. So for me, though, I, I I didn't really, I suppose I was kind of a little bit oblivious to feeling like that. I felt that I had, you know, a bit of speed and I, I enjoyed jumping. I remember doing high jump at the English schools quite a few years. Um, and yeah, I suppose jumping did come kind of naturally to me, even though I was, you know, quite small and you know, it's very different to a number of athletes that were at the same age at that time. But I, yeah, I did enjoy jumping. Yeah, that that was that was the the one where I just thought, okay, that's um, that's an exceptional quality, and you, and you lost it quite a lot when you uh, after your first child, Reggie, you lost that spring and that mm. stiffness, didn't you? Mm. I think that was the biggest change that I noticed when, obviously, I fell pregnant with Reggie. He was, you know, he was my first child, and I kind of didn't really know how much my body was going to change, and. In my mind, I kind of thought that I was going to come back and, yeah, you know, I'd have a bit of rustiness and mm. need to kind of retrain myself a bit and, and get my fitness levels up. But I I still thought that I would be that same athlete where essentially I came back and the biggest shock for me was, yeah, that springiness, that explosivity that I'd had so naturally before just wasn't quite there I didn't have that turnover in speed I could always find that extra gear you know if I was doing a running session with the girls I'd always be able to just push that little bit harder towards the end and you know win the rep or run a good time that I needed to achieve whereas when I came back after being pregnant with Reggie I I just I just didn't have that other level and that was the biggest shock for me Mm. but you had quite a bit of endurance didn't you you had that sort of persistence element which is something that's quite interesting that's going on in the body there around mm. oxygen carrying capacity to to support the child and so on that was that was an interesting one where actually we were for the first time for you anyway yeah. we were saying oh back off the endurance a little bit to invest recovery time to start 
yeah. investing in the, the strength and the power more. Yeah, exactly. We did. We had to spend yeah a lot more time in the weights room, getting that strength back up and that explosivity there again. But yeah, in the 800, it, it was weird because I'd always find those sessions really hard and I dread them. I absolutely hated every 800 meter session. But when There's I was... There's venom d- in your voice. <laughs> I did. I really, really did not enjoy them. But when I came back, I kind of had that, that uh, I don't know, just a different energy where I could just keep going that little bit longer. I could just keep that constant speed and... Yeah, it just felt easier, and I'd never experienced it like that before, which yeah. was nice. Yeah, well, you've, you effectively almost had like a like a mini altitude training session with with the fetus, uh, <laughs> robbing you of oxygen. So you, you've you've got something that's taking that oxygen away from you. Mm. So your body's then having to sort of overcompensate with it. So, um, so yeah, that's that's one way of getting some endurance training. Yeah, an uh, extreme way. <laughs> so that was, and and that links back to where sort of I met you and started working with you. So I think the origin of this was 2004, Junior World Championships, Grishetto. Yeah, yeah, in Italy, yes. So you were first, second, first, second, all the way through. Yeah. And then the wheels started to come off a little bit. Mm -hmm. Javelin and 800. So you Mm. you went from top, you know, expecting a medal Mm. to not even in in contention. Yeah, and they were, you know, that particular championship, with a couple of other ones were really defining moments in my career and I always think back to those times because it kind of gave me a more a kind of like a fuller experience and understanding of the event because like you say I was you know I was leading I had some really strong events on the first day but my second day was so weak that it was that realization that you can be great for the first day and be in the first, second, third position, but you can literally drop all the way down to eighth in a matter of, you know, three events. So yeah, it was, um, it was quite tough to kind of experience that as a, you know, as a young teenager, but a really important lesson. And it made me approach the way I trained and, yeah, the lessons that I learned from it in a slightly different way. So what was that like a big bit of an intake of breath thinking, okay, I've got, I'm talented, but I've got Mm. to cover off my weaknesses as well as develop the Mm. strengths. Yeah, it made me understand that I absolutely can't have a weakness. And yeah, it's great to focus on strengths and you enjoy doing those events because you're good at them. But actually, if you slightly neglect a weaker event or don't spend as much time on it, then there's almost, you know, it's almost pointless because you're not going to be able to put the score together and, you know, get that kind of score to be on the podium. So, yeah, definitely a realisation at that stage of my career. It was um, it was an interesting time for heptathlon, wasn't it, in the sense that with uh, Kelly Southerton, with Carolina Clough, they were making the 800 count, mm. whereas before the medals kind of decided and it was a bit of a formality for the, for the 800 just, just to secure the, the medals from the previous six events. But the 800 was starting to become almost it's now deciding or changing the medals around a bit yeah and I think as I was coming into the event like you say when Carolina Clough she was you know at the peak of her career and just about to kind of leave as I was coming to my best and yeah you're right it was very much the girls ran incredibly quick times um I remember Carolina Tominska the Polish girl she would run 204 205 Mm. and it wasn't just one or two it was quite a few um in the zeros so yeah you absolutely had to make sure that you didn't neglect your you know your speedy explosive events but 
you still needed to really stay in touch with the 800 meters it couldn't just be a throwaway event you needed to make sure that you were you know running a, a pretty strong time and that was one of the, the central issues that we we're always working through that I would you know, Tony would say oh, what how can we turn Jess into this amazing 800 meter runner and I'd say well there's, there's a very clear plan of way of doing that but that invests a lot of endurance training mm. but there's a there's a cost to that and mm. it would it could potentially put at risk your your real strengths and and that's starting to get into the space of well should we invest in that or not it speaks to the, the sort of balancing act that you're constantly working through yeah and I think every heptathlete's you know, they put it together differently, don't they? You see some heptathletes who are fantastic runners and, you know, have a great hurdles, a great 200, some that are absolutely amazing in the jumps, the throws, because even though you don't get massive points in the throws, some of those girls are thrown so far mm. that they are, you know, clawing back big points, really. Um, so, yeah, everyone puts it together completely different. I think that's testament to how Tony structured my event to make it appropriate to me physically and yeah. and what kind of athlete I was so we definitely focus a lot on the speed elements the jumping because it was something that came naturally to me the throws was you know two events that we had to work so hard at because it literally you know it took me like 10 years to work out how to throw the shot put properly and the javelin it just didn't come naturally to me and then in turn we had to work pretty hard in the strength room as well because you know, I was always quite small. A lot of the heptathletes are, you know, really tall, strong girls. Yeah. So we had to make sure that I was really, really strong and efficient and my technique was solid. And I think those are the things that helped me to put together such a big score. Yeah. And and for the for the eight, because it is almost quite polar opposite. Mm. Although good fitness is going gonna, is gonna to help all of the other events. Um, we were constantly looking for ways to efficiently introduce training specialist sessions to try and hit certain capacities mm. but without it really uh, disrupting anything which is really hard to do yeah. really hard because it is I think at that stage I was maybe doing one or two 800 meter sessions mm. a week but again like you say it was that balance of understanding what was going to have the biggest effect without you know affecting my really strong events yeah and I remember a, a conversation with you what's it like do I think it was after the Commonwealth Games obviously you would made a, a step change improvement you'd, you'd entered the stage there mm-hmm. um big big improvement in in 800 high jump was amazing wasn't it yeah and I remember asking you what's it like doing one of these heptathlons and you sort of said oh it's tiring but it's it's not just the the events it's the hanging about it's the carrying your bags waiting your turn trying to rest and recover in the bowels of a stadium where it's not that easy to recover yeah and I was like oh okay so it's not it's almost like the bits between as well as which started mm-hmm. hatching this plan of this this recovery plan throughout so that you'd get to the 800 fresher than anyone else on the start line yeah and I think I only really experienced the extras around the event once I started making championships because like you say there's so much to it it's not just you stepping out on the track and performing in each event it's how you come away from that event mentally are you happy are you disappointed with what you've done how do you refocus your mind onto the next event how do you recover how how do you occupy your mind in those hours when you know there's like six hours 
between you know the last event to the next event and particularly with the 800 there was always a really long gap and that was such a tough time where you have to recover you have to get yourself ready and and feel physically prepared to go out there and, and run your absolute best time but also mentally you're just so fatigued and drained from the two days of competing that's my dog that's all right yeah, about. The dog's coming into the podcast um so uh, chocolate labrador myla which how, so myla's about 10 years old now i remember you, is that, is that yeah right? she's yeah. 10 years old yeah i remember you getting myla yeah and, and showing us pictures of little baby myla and um and everyone's like, oh, it's such a lovely name. And I was like, yeah, you need to be a miler, as in run miles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do, I did. <laughs> you did. But Myla was, she's a massive part of um, my career as well, because obviously after Beijing in 2008, and I had all that disappointment and horrible injuries, we decided to get Myla as a way to just distract me and pick me up from oh. a really, really tough year. So I think we got her in the February of um, 2009 and obviously 2009 became a really successful year. So yeah, she's been a very good omen and a great dog. Let's get, let's get onto that then. So 2007 World Championships in Osaka, fourth place, mm. probably third. Don't know whether they're still doing upgrades. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, so that, that must have really been a sense of, okay, I'm, I, I belong on this stage now. So you were 21, was that right? Yeah, gosh, yes. That Um, was my first, yeah, my first World Championships. And in Osaka, it was a great experience out there. Um, Being part of a team and just being in that environment. I, you know, I'd obviously done the Commonwealth Games, but the world was on another Mm. level. And yeah, I remember just feeling really excited and just really motivated and having all that adrenaline and excitement to just want to go out there and do my absolute best. So I came away, I came away from that competition really inspired, slightly disappointed in a strange mm. way because I never, I never really expected that I would become, you know, come forth all that close to the podium. But when I did, I, I kind of knew that I was so close. I knew that it was my shot put that let me down that if I'd just thrown a little bit further that it was you know well in in my reach to pick up a medal there so that's starting to reinforce that hunger and the fuel for nearly there so Mm. I've got to I've got to refocus but also then intensifying around the shot put for example yeah Um, we we definitely went away after that championship and you know Tony put a plan together of how we could start addressing this event because it you know it was a tough event for me and although I never went into a shot put event mentally not there you know I always put everything in I I was very positive going into it I still didn't have that really honed in technique and confidence in in me physically that I could throw the distances that I needed to and you know Tony would always say it's just going to take time it is a time event and it will come eventually which it did but it was very frustrating to you know I was throwing 12 meters at the time when other girls were throwing 13 14 15 meters and that's a big big gap and that's that's an interesting one because when we're looking for sort of shortcuts to make the 800 look or feel easier so that you're you're not necessarily having to prioritize that too much there was a bit of discussion with tony over the years actually doing some of the hard sessions will give you that bank of confidence 
you know, just genuine, authentic mm. confidence on the star line. I've put the training in, I've done it, mm. um, which is sort of hinting to there for all the other events where yeah. you've got you've got to prove it in training. It's got to be a stable technique for you to deliver it mm. in the heat of competition. Yeah, and that's particularly with the 800 metres. I'd go into the 800 metres dreading it, so worried, so nervous. It actually makes me feel like anxious talking about it now. Don't worry, I'm not going to have to do one. <laughs> I'm not going to have to do one. Um, <laughs> but no, I always would literally tell myself on the start line that I have done the most brutal sessions I've you know run so hard in training I've my whole body's been filled with lactic I've been on the floor thinking I can't get up I can't run again and Tony said one more rep and I've found a way to do it so I literally I just have to run two laps here I've done a lot worse um and I have the fitness to do it so that gave me a huge amount of confidence in that event particularly so 2008 got sits a real pivotal moment Mm. Um, so talk us through the 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 injury and I guess I guess how did it feel you're kind of heading into Olympic year all right you're 22 at the time so not necessarily going to be at your peak but but still this is a an amazing opportunity to to go to the games talk us through that so that was a real turning point in my career for reasons that I didn't realize at the time so before then I'd obviously done the world championships and come forth I'd done the come off games and we never really expected that I was going to be ready for Olympics at that stage so I suppose looking back me and Tony would probably both say that we changed too much in that year going into the Olympics Mm. I think we both thought that let's mix things up a bit let's train a bit harder let's add some things in that we haven't added in before because you know, I wanted to be ready for my first Olympics. But that was the year where kind of things went completely wrong. So I, I remember going into Gotsis and I'd had kind of a few like little foot pains, but nothing major. I'd had a bit of stiffness in my ankle, but we still felt that Gotsis was, you know, was on and that I was going to be ready to to go out there and perform well. And actually, you know, it was definitely not the right thing to do and when I got to Gotsis I um I remember doing the high jump the hurdles was okay felt good I felt good warming up and then the high jump I just remember trying to run my curve into the high jump bed and I just couldn't put any pressure through my my ankle and my foot on that angle and every time I ran through I just kept thinking oh you know loosen off a bit and then it it was just apparent that you know I absolutely I just couldn't I couldn't run on it Mm. so we had to yeah step off the track and and call it a day and it was the most devastating moment of my career it was just yeah awful and and what was going through your head at the moment at that time thinking um I'm going to miss out on Beijing or is this career threatening what was what was going through your head um I think at the time I was just thinking what what is wrong what's happened I didn't know how serious it was I didn't know if it was just something that was quite minor and that would be fixed quite easily I was devastated to have to pull out of a competition full stop I'd never had to stop midway through a heptathlon I'd always got you know got through it and got to the end and that was a real real shock to me because I'd never had to do that before and then the realization of I remember sitting in the changing rooms and just been in tears and having to you know face the media and and talk to everyone about 
how everything was and I didn't know I didn't know what the injury was I didn't know how bad it was I didn't know how long it would take me to recover and obviously everyone wanted to know whether I was going to be ready for the Olympics because it was a couple of months away so yeah it was it was really really tough really tough and I had to fly back that night and go and have scans and be assessed and I think at that point I still felt that I think I was thinking oh gosh I hope I don't have to miss two weeks of training that'll be (laughs) devastating that's the kind of thing that was going through my head I hadn't realized how you know how bad it 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 was Mm. so there's a there's almost an expected level of uncertainty after something like that it's it's Mm. going to be uncertain for athletes isn't it but what what helped you what helped you focus again or what helped you sort of get through that that dip um without doubt everyone around me Mm. I you know I I went back I had my scans I was told that you know it's a a navicular stress fracture a stress fracture in my metatarsal and another bone and you're going to miss the Olympics but this could potentially be a long-term issue for you so we need to make sure that you are recovered fully and that we do this properly because potentially it was something that I'd have problems with throughout my career and it just it was just like blow after blow I was just so so down and felt really you know demotivated and that worry of am I actually going to you know get back to where I want to but without doubt the people around me so you know Ali my physio Derry my soft tissue therapist Tony the whole team everyone was just so determined in getting me back there was not even a question it was like no we are doing this we're doing it the right way um and everyone yeah was just there to to support me and help me get back yeah I remember seeing you in Sheffield a few Maybe midsummer actually. So you, I think you had a, your foot in a bucket and mm-hmm. of, of ice, and you looked genuinely fraught. You, you looked down, really mm. down, sort of just in the eyes of just I've just been through this. Um, everyone else is getting ready for the games. Everyone's getting their kit or get, mm. getting their flight, and you were just down. And um, I remember sitting down with you and just saying, "There's so much you can do before." you can start running again there's so much you can do to sort of build uh, that fitness back up and that started all this non-unloaded training that we were hatching Mm. so yeah sorry that that came as so I I started hatching a load of hideous training sessions (laughs) for you blow after blow after blow and then hideous sessions but I suppose that at least gives you gave you something to do and tuck your tuck into yeah so I didn't even really have that much time to kind of wallow in my own self-pity and think oh why me because like you say you and Tony had all started hatching these little plans of I was on that magnetic machine at one stage and you know all these recovery strategies constant physio um all the upper body stuff that I did which then had a massive knock-on effect to my throwing um and all the ways of of keeping fit without loading through you know my ankle and my foot which I kind of thought I'd just be laid on the sofa just you know crying to myself missing the Olympics yeah exactly exactly (laughs) um but yeah there was there was so much that you all had me doing and um yeah, I think physically it kept me going, it kept me moving forwards, and also mentally it was a great distraction. Of course, you need moments where you do need to just sit by yourself and think, why me? 
and be down about it and I absolutely had moments of that as well but I think having all those distractions those positive distractions and that motivation from you know training in a different way was as a huge part of why I was able to yeah get back the following year and and keep improving it was such an interesting one because I, 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 it blurs a little bit for me but I think it was April 2012 when you had a bit of a niggle is that right we put you back on the bike for quite a bit of time yeah I think it was I had quite a few little niggles in 2011 if you remember so I started having like some little Achilles issues and yeah started revisiting the bike again that lovely bike (laughs) it was it was um it was interesting because I remember you coming back off the bike and then going back into running relatively you know aggressively i.e going back up to full speed and I remember Tony saying, geez, she hasn't lost any speed over the hurdles. You're potentially six weeks off running mm. and that retention of fitness. And, but also it's, it got us talking about, look, you, you've got to be doing this even when you're fit mm. to give your body a break. That would be smart training mm. as opposed to we only do that when we're hurt. Yeah, yeah. I think having that injury, particularly in 2008, it kind of created a massive change in our approach moving forwards with everything like you say so it wasn't it was about training sensibly it was about recovering sensibly but it was about introducing elements of the bike and you know going in the hydrotherapy pool even when I wasn't injured like you say just to allow your body to offload and as an athlete you think no I need to be on the track I need to be running running all the time and actually you know getting on the bike has a massive effect you can do some incredibly hard sessions on there and you know pretty much kill yourself Mm. but you don't have that muscle soreness um and that fatigue that you have when you run so you're able to recover in a better way so yeah I mean it it definitely had an impact on how we we trained moving forwards which was really beneficial to you know the future championships that I had coming up so um so 2009, we were 10 years on from that transition from, from being in the doldrums and having a navicular stress fractures and so on. Um, and then the transition into uh, an almighty level of comeback. Well, you've, actually, you've probably beaten that level of comeback um, in 2015, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> that, <laughs> of of yeah. coming back after having given birth to Reggie. <laughs> um, so you are like queen of comebacks in that sense. <laughs> Um, so what was going through your mind um, and your planning and thinking about 2009 after 2008's upset? I think in my mind I was just had this pure focus of I don't want my career to end like this. I, you know, I'm still very young. I've still got so much to achieve. And I kind of just wanted to prove to myself that I could come back. And I think also a lot of people had you know, questions as to whether I would be able to jump the way I did after having an injury like that. And that was a big part of why my heptathlon was so good. And I kind of wanted to just set a marker and say, this isn't the end of my career. I'm very much moving forwards. Um, But it was a really worrying year because every time I did run and I had any kind of feeling in my foot, it'd send me into constant panic again, Mm. thinking that, is this the start of a buildup of another stress fracture? So it was it was a really a really worrying year, but at the same time, an absolutely incredible year because I was able to, 
you know, just to get through that block of training, to get to a world championships and to win my first, you know, world championships was, it just made it so much sweeter that I'd gone through that year before um, to be at the top of the podium. It was absolutely amazing. So we, we threw the kitchen sink at you to back end of 2008 and 2009. And I remember feeling as though we should probably grow up some of these strategies, sort of ease them in. But actually we just went, no, let's just do it. Mm. And do it, get it in, and loads of times drilling some um, sessions and uh, testing you and so on. But um, you said in the in 2008 you tried to change too much. What, mm. what was different then back to sort of 2009? I think it was coming into Olympic year, which we'd not done before in that position. I think that I'd just finished university. Right. So I was a full-time student up until that point and then I had the capacity to train more I had the flexibility to train more and I think in both of our minds we just yeah just tried to change a few little things so I'd do an extra session here an extra session there and although it doesn't look like a lot actually the impact of it on my body was quite a lot um so yeah and I think so many people can be guilty of that you feel that you're going into Olympic year and you have to you have to make a difference you have to make a change because it's the olympics and i think that's one thing tony taught me and that we both learned from that time moving forward to any other championships we approach whether it be world's olympics europeans it was always you know we'll do the same process we'll follow what we always do because it works and it is essentially another competition it's a heptathlon that i've done a million times why change too much so yeah i think that was that was the main reasons why we we tinkered about a little bit with that year. That's an interesting concept, and it's definitely one I've observed over the arc of somebody's career. Um, I think you, I would say you're probably better than average, <laughs> but it's still like a paradox where you, the, the thing that got you to the top of the podium is what you're going to then try and do again. Mm. But actually what you need to do is something very different. Uh, and with... In the early phases of your career, you know, lapping it up, or you, you had lots of questions about why are we doing this, especially hard sessions. You go, why, why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah. Give me, give me the good reason before I accept this. Um, I remember once in the warm up, you're like, why are we doing it at this pace? <laughs> I <laughs> never said that. I don't remember that. <laughs> that was that was the moment I thought. I think we found the right pace. <laughs> we found the right pace because you're thinking this isn't this why is am too I uncomfortable. Um, that paradox of where you go, ah, oh, this this got me to the top of the podium, but I've now got to change. I don't want to change that. Mm. And becoming champion crystallizes what you've done. I remember trying to get an idea across the line with Linford Christie for some of his athletes, and he's like, "Well, I never did that." That's quite a difficult thing to counter. It is, and it's it's so individual to the athlete as well, isn't it? And it's it's yeah, what got you to that point? And of course, to move forward, you do have to make slight changes, but it's trusting in the core of what you do, I suppose, yeah. and that process. And I think that's what we learned. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so two thousand nine, so ten years. That, that was that kind of brink point. Now, there are a couple of things that the. I think probably happened in 2009. Obviously, you become world champion. So suddenly you're like, the, because of the backdrop of we've got the games, mm. you're suddenly forced into the, the limelight of not only uh, a global champion, but also a global champion in a sport that will be the centrepiece of, our, of a home Olympics. 
were you conscious conscious of that early on or how did that how did that tension start to emerge in your mind I I suppose I wasn't really conscious of it until it got into you know the year before the Olympics really it was something that I hadn't really thought about and it wasn't something that happened overnight it was a gradual thing so yeah I mean I remember people saying oh how did you become the face of the Olympics and I just it just like evolved it just happened and before I knew it you know everyone was talking about me winning a gold medal at home Olympics and like you said it wasn't just in the athletic community it was like globally and because it was at home in London it was in it was everywhere just absolutely everywhere and I remember flying into um you know into into London before we were about to compete and there's a massive like painting of me in a field (laughs) and all these things welcome to our turf yeah and it a humble British way of trying to intimidate every fan (laughs) every official every athlete to imagine that was and that was me yeah and now you know I look back and I think gosh if I'd allowed myself to think about it really think about it and think about what people were expecting of me I think it would have completely broken me down but because I was so focused on the process of my event that was all I thought about it was I was so distracted by not just one event I have to get the hurdles right I have to get the high jump right high jump's going well well the shot put's not so I need to work on that and it was just a complete juggling act of those events in my mind and I think that's what kept me distracted from worrying about you know what I had to actually go out there and do. That's a healthy strategy, but also, I suppose, having a strategy of dealing with it in the moment uh, yeah. of, of the games. I, I'm pretty sure the process of scrapping around for the face of the game started about 10 minutes after London was awarded the games. Do you think? Yeah, I do. I mean, it was one of those, we got the games. Oh, shit, we got the games. Yeah. Um, and it was a case of just thinking... I remember getting phone calls from athletes and coaches going, it is on, fantastic, we're going for this, it's mm. going to be incredible. And others going, oh, it's too late in my career, or it's too early in my career. Um, yeah, I think the media were, were hungry early on for mm. that. And I think you were probably, it's good that you were oblivious of it maybe in a few years I, before. Yeah, I think I still felt quite young and it seemed so far away. And because Tony had always kind of drilled into me, don't, get too carried away with the long term we have a long-term plan but let's just stick to focusing on this and then we'll focus on next year and then we'll focus on that and it just seemed a really long way away and also I'd you know experienced it being snatched away from me right at the last minute so that made me appreciate being in the moment more than I ever had I think snatched away from you from 2008 yeah. and or from 2011 yeah, 2011 was a really funny year because I I felt great. I felt in really good shape. I'd had a few little niggles and a few little setbacks earlier on in the year, but I trained so hard because I wanted to be at my best going into Olympic year. And heading out to the World Championships in Daegu, um, you know, I, I felt really good and really positive. And coming away with the silver medal, kind of, you know, I'd say openly that I was happy but deep down I felt that slight bit of disappointment because I thought I'm here competing against everyone that I'm going to compete against next year in the Olympics a much bigger event at home and I wasn't able to win so it started putting little seeds of doubt 
gaps in my mind. I started questioning, you know, what have I done wrong? Because I've trained so hard. I've done everything I can possibly do, but I'm still not, I'm still not winning. So that was, that was a tough year. And obviously what, what happened, you know, a few years later kind of made me... In terms of the retrospective award for the medal, you mean? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> Chinova was, you know, stripped of her medal and I was awarded the gold medal. And although it felt great to receive that medal finally, I did feel disappointed that I didn't have it at the time. But equally, you know, it was a driving force for me to go away and and work really hard and, you know, just assess everything and make sure everything was spot on, that I was ready, you know, absolutely ready in every event for that for that big Olympic year. That that was a it took to a certain extent for us, supporting you, that was a blessing. Mm. Absolute blessing. Mm. Because I could feel the creep of you're not doing this, you're not doing that, or you're sort of because you'd gone world champion, European champion. Yeah. And you'd gone in showing form, um, but not necessarily got the result. And you had, you know, had a good performance, didn't you, yeah. in the end? Um, and it just tightened that focus of, I'm going to do my power breathe. I'm going to make sure I deliver the 800 in the right way. Yeah, um, I think I, I, I totally agree. I think you need those moments in life and in your career where it's just like a little nudge to say, this isn't going to be easy I know you know you've Mm. won worlds and Europeans but actually you know there's still a lot to do it just pulls you back a little bit and not that I was getting overly carried away but I yeah I just think that you always need that reminder of it's going to be incredibly tough to win an Olympic gold medal and and that's something we could sense and feel that it was just a lot more disciplined you were really on it Mm. as opposed to no I don't really need to do that I don't need to do this um and it just felt more controlled and tighter going into, mm. into yeah I did absolutely everything everything the whole team asked of me you know whether it was extra physio sessions and you know all the power brief stuff um that you know the warming up the cooling down everything all the strategies that were put in place I yeah I 100% committed to everything because it's you know it was a once in a lifetime opportunity that I would never ever have again hmm. what were your early results in 2012 season where were you so I went to Gotsis and broke the British record and Gotsis is always that time where you know it's a fantastic competition and I did feel that worry of after 2008 I felt like oh gosh Gotsis is an amazing competition but is it going to be that competition for me where it always comes apart and I felt you know obviously having to retire from the the competition in 2008 with that injury I just worried that it was going to be that annoying competition for me and actually I was able to rectify it and you know I think I won three times there Mm. and it became as amazing as I as I originally imagined it and to break the British record was incredible Mm. so I'm so we hooked up probably about a couple of weeks before the games to give me I gave you your briefing cards your little strategy cards you used Mm -hmm. to take into the to the stadium and um and again I saw that sort of strain and stress in your eyes of right it's it's close now and um and I I remember that 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 was the same day that I got stung by some lady in the Telegraph and had misquoted me and talking about Mo Farah using altitude tents and I I was in a bit of a rage. (laughs) 
I lost there. Right, I've got to go. Brief, Jess. Okay, that's cool. And I was just, and I, and you said, oh, "How are you?" It's the last thing I wanted you to ask me. Oh no! <laughs> so I started going, "Oh no!" I've just been stung by the press, <laughs> and um, and then you just went, "Oh yeah, that's a shame. Oh, these, these things happen." Anyway, let's get down to business. And, uh, <laughs> and that was a really nice little reframe because I, I came away thinking, "Oh God, why am I offloaded to Jess?" <laughs> I've got enough stress this year, thank you. <laughs> but where you just kind of went, oh, yeah, never mind. Yeah, all right, let's let's let's, let's refocus. Yeah, and um, those those briefing cards and the little delivery for the eight hundred. So you had five five things you had to do, for, of which you did four for the eight hundred. <laughs> um, one was a fast start, so mm-hmm. and you hit uh, about eight seconds for the fifty, yeah, which was all drilled. Uh, the second one was to run a straight line from the break, which you didn't. Oh, I didn't. You didn't, but oh. you routinely, you routinely did. Yeah. And I've watched the video over several times, and I've often wondered why you didn't. Okay. Other than you being impatient, potentially. <laughs> Probably that. To but Chernova was inside you, mm-hmm. and I wondered. I've often wondered whether it was subconscious or not. Whether you just thought, "No, I'm just going to get in front of the girl." <laughs> I, I think it was. I think it was that feeling of, I like. I like to lead from the start and it was just getting, yeah, just getting that edge over, you get back. <laughs> yeah. And then, so, and pacing, pacing at 200 and 400 were next and mm-hmm. then not, not running wide on the bends mm. and then holding and holding and holding to 120 and then, then releasing. Yeah. And the, the marker, at the, the, the yellow line at 120 where you just step, step out and run mm. and blast everyone away. But you got quite a bit of crowding during the 800, didn't you? You, you know, had Zelinka coming past you, mm. you, Chernova went past you, and you could see you almost revving. I don't know if you've watched it back at all, but you mm. could see you revving, waiting to go, but holding that discipline of that rule. Yeah, it was, it, yeah, I mean, I, I followed that rule absolutely, and I knew that that was the best part of my race, and you know, like I said earlier, I knew I'd done all those hard sessions and I had that speed. I knew I wasn't going to fade or go backwards on that last point because I'd worked so hard training wise to make sure I was strong there. So I did have that discipline, but I also did feel that there was, there was girls around me. And a lot of the time I kind of been just in front and out by myself. So it's very easy just to kick when you're there alone. But there was, yeah, it was Olympic final. The crowd was going absolutely crazy and everyone was right there. So it was a bit of a different situation that I found myself in compared to previous competitions. Well, you had to, well, effectively you had to go, you, make sure you didn't trip up effectively. Yeah. Um, but you obviously wanted to finish it with a plomb and mm. get it and get it done and put a stamp on that, on the, on the finish there. Yeah. So uh, I've jumped ahead to the 800, um, but first event, hurdles, when, when I've been to a heptathlon before, Olympic Stadium or World Championships, first event, morning session, there's 30 athletes, 30 coaches, 30 pigeons, not many <laughs> else turn up for the hurdles. Yeah. You agree to with 80,000 people come to watch you do your thing. Mm. We've had that conversation before, but for the purpose of the podcast, how did it feel just on the start line? Um, I felt strangely calm on the start line because 
you know, you get up at, I think I was up at like five o'clock in the morning and you've got your whole routine of what time you eat, what time you get in the bus to the stadium, how you're going to warm up. And I think those moments are the most nerve wracking moments because you're not quite there. You've not begun your warm up. You've still got that adrenaline, all that nervous energy with inside you. And then when I started my warm up, it kind of started to release a little bit and I had a successful warm up. I just remember thinking the hurdles are coming at me really quick and it felt really strange and I was like I don't know if this is my turnover is it really windy is you know what's happening but I feel the hurdles are coming up really closely and obviously that was because my turnover and my speed was really there so when I stepped out into the stadium I just felt excited because there's that many people there I never experienced that in my life but also just really calm because I knew that I was in the best shape of my life my warm-up had gone well I had no injuries I love a crowd anyway and everyone there just you know that adrenaline of people watching you and I was just ready to go. That's fascinating fascinating from the point of view that there's you're you're drawing on this is going well all the proof all the evidence but also that you're discovering something new and that's quite a unique thing about it. if you get a taper right mm. you're you're experiencing form and fitness that you've never experienced before. And that was one of the conversations with Tony that we were talking about. Don't get the, the ta- you almost don't put too much into the taper because otherwise you end up peaking after the competition. Yeah. And, um, and some horrible sessions that we designed so that you could, could try and peak on the day. But that's interesting that you're, you're feeling that speed and thinking, whoa, this is almost yeah. too hot to handle. That's the one thing that really stuck in my mind that I just felt they were coming up quick and I knew that if they're coming up quick then it's a good it's definitely a good sign Mm. and I've obviously ran the fastest time in my career in the 12.54 yeah could have won the Olympics or at least matched the gold medal winning time from 2008 yeah I, I literally it was the best feeling ever I just you know the race was a complete blur it was just you know the crowd was so loud got into the blocks and then it was all quiet and then I just remember, I don't remember each hurdle. I don't remember people around me. I just remember it, it just happened. And then crossing the line, and I just remember looking at the clock and there's loads of pictures of me, like my arms up, like yeah. just in complete shock that the race just went so smoothly and that I'd run that time at the most important part and phase of my career. It was just amazing. Hurdles is such a big point scorer. It's, it's critical to get the first hurdle right and, the, you know, and, and nail that event. Mm. So what's going through your mind thinking, right, I've got a devastatingly high score now. What's going through your mind? Is that relief or is that a sense of, right, come and get me now? Uh, or it's up to you now to put the pressure on your opponents? Uh, I think for me, it's an element of relief, but a really great way for me to start because the hurdles and the high jump are have always been two strong events for me so I'd always start my heptathlon really strongly really positively and that worked really well for me as an athlete I needed those two events at the beginning to go really well and have that confidence and then I found that it was easy to kind of bring it into the next few events and the next day so for me having the hurdles and the high jump first and to be able to perform in that way was a massive yeah, psychological benefit as well, I think, for me, going into the rest of the event. Have a little, little dip for a shot put. Or <laughs> the shot <laughs> yeah. put was good, though, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to remember all my individual scores now, but my, yeah, my shot put was, was good, um, the best it's been for, for years. And, 
Yeah, everything through those two days just, they just happened. It was, they, they just came together. It's an interesting one, though, in the sense that you don't remember your times or your distances. And, <laughs> and, but, and, not, not, and I'm not saying that, you know, you should be a nerd and, and, um, and talk about the wind speed direction or, or whatever it might be. But there's a sense that I've always thought about you, that, that you have this interest in people, that, um, that athletics is something you're passionate about and that you do and you're proud of what you can do. Mm. Uh, but it's not all-consuming and that you don't, you, it, you don't necessarily overthink the, the competition, but you have a sharp focus when it matters. Yeah, and I think that's the way I always approach training. I, I didn't want to or need to know every little detail about everything because I think it's just cluttering your mind, whereas I just keep everything simple, put everything out. I know the main things that I need to focus on for each event, you know, technical-wise or things that I'd been working on. But yeah, to just clutter your mind because there are so many things that try and creep in in those moments when you're competing. It's very hard to, to put it all out. And in some ways, it's quite unusual. A lot of competitors are all... It, it is all or nothing. It's all consuming and, and, it, and it can take over. Mm. And to a certain extent, some advice to telling someone to just get out, go and have a, go into the cinema, go and have a pizza or something like that. It's not the most sophisticated mm. coaching or scientific support, but actually it means that they just, they just need to break out of that spiral. Yeah, I think it's having some separation and it work, It doesn't work for everyone, but it worked for me. And to have, to be so focused and so driven by what I wanted to achieve and I trained incredibly hard, Tony might say differently, but I, you know, I trained so hard every year but I always made sure that I had some separation to what I did. I think I noticed my my best performances and when I was at my best was when I was really happy, you know, like my life elsewhere was really happy and I had great separation between training, which is very consuming, to everything else. And I think that had a massive impact on why I was able to be so successful. Do you know what, do you know where that comes from? And I, I remember... I was sitting around the table celebrating your 2009 World Championship win and I, I sat next to you and you and I said, what's the plan then, Jess? And you just said, oh, I'd just be very happy if we could get a gold medal in London and just settle down and have kids. And I, and I was like, <laughs> in, in some ways, the same acclimatisation that I had when I first met Olympic champions and world champions, of just going, wow, this is intense. I was like, oh, wow, that's quite content. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm quite grounded. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think, I mean, it's a lot to do with like my environment and my parents and, you know, how I've been brought up. My, you know, my mum and dad are very, very relaxed. You know, it was never, they were never pushy at competitions or overly, you know, kind of on me all the time. They encouraged me to, to train and, you know, to keep going even when friends dropped out and things changed they always encouraged me to go my dad's very much if you ask him what my high jump pb is he wouldn't have a clue but he's so proud of me and so supportive and I think having people like them around me just I don't know they just changed my perspective on on how I wanted to be what I wanted to achieve what's important to me and I you know I always just had that desire that I wanted to be the best athlete I could be and win as many medals and be as successful as I could be, but also have a nice balance to life. Um, 
and yeah I always you know always wanted kids and that was something that I always really looked forward to as well and it's nice to be sat here now feeling that I have the best best of both worlds I've had a fantastic career and some amazing memories and times with a fantastic team and now I have my children who can look back and yeah hopefully be proud of what I've achieved as well yeah I remember being asked by one parent of an athlete what their uh, what their son's lactate scores were and I was like oh really <laughs> uh, <laughs> let alone a high jump um, but um but there was a sense that your parents were oh this is lovely mm. oh, isn't this wonderful that we've got a team uh, that in support of you and thinking well that's an incredible thing to, to yeah experience. it was just a really nice journey that I think we all went on and um having such a great team but having my family and my now husband you know him and his brothers used to come out to all all of my competitions mainly just for a bit of a holiday and just a good time but it was just a really nice atmosphere of great people around me and that made it so much easier mm. and so the the team has been um obviously we've been a privilege to be part of team genus as it got termed in Mm. the in the press um the team's formed and shaped over the years and um what what i've observed is that you've you've just drawn on it as you need to be i don't think we've ever worked together around the table as a complete team as one unit ever but we've Mm. we've probably had bursts of four or five people working together but you've almost dipped in and said this is what I need at this moment or this is this is my plan I remember after um when you when you were pregnant and you because uh, we remember we we moved a lot of your training apart during the day so mm. you had more time to recover yeah and then you just basically said right you need to wait configure another way of basically putting it all in the morning yeah and I want the same sort of level of recovery because I want to see my yeah. son in the afternoon yeah go figure that out that was I kind of it <laughs> I remember sitting down with Chell and I was like well I you know I want to come back and I want to train and I want to win medals but I can't do it the way I did I can't be down in the morning like you said have a break go home for a yeah. nap and then come back and do another session it's just it's not going to work for me and I was in that time where I still wanted to be really successful but I didn't want it to be at the detriment of me seeing Reggie and being a good mum so to be fair you did a fantastic job of you know putting a schedule together where it was all about quality sessions and not long sessions and I think that actually worked in my favour as well you know I was obviously getting older had Reggie and injuries start becoming a bit more frequent so having that high quality of training but at a reduced level probably did work for me in some way but I did I mean I had to cut you know the training down massively after Reggie yeah that was that was a real challenge where I thought oh no all that great grounding that we put in place <laughs> but then I also thought well there the, was the innovative problem solving oh okay we get something new to work out but there was also just a sense of yeah brilliant I love the fact that you're just going I'm a mum first hmm. You guys go and figure it out. That's what you're there to do. Yeah, <laughs> I like, love good that. Luck. <laughs> but that, that, you know, that was such a, a great year, and it was it gave me a massive, a huge, massive sense of motivation in a different way. Because after the Olympics, you know, I went back into winter training and back to hill runs, and everything was just the same. But I'd won the Olympics, and it's really quite hard because you feel. Like you kind of question why you're doing it and the enjoyment goes up and down and you know you you wonder if you're going to have that same high again and is it going to be worth it 
So when I fell pregnant with Reggie and then I, I decided I was going to come back, it gave me a different sense of motivation that I'd never had before. Um, and I think that really helped me to go on and, and win the following year. So to talk to me about the moments after you've got the gold medal, you've got the Olympic gold medal in your hands and and that sense of what, what was what was your feeling? Because, I mean, you were full of tears, very emotional, but <laughs> but it was, what was going through your mind? Just relief. Yeah. Just absolute so relief. So common. Yeah. Such a consistent yeah. response from champions. Mm, I think, you know, I can look back now and say, oh, it was just great. And it was great, but it was. I, I honestly felt like I was holding my breath through the whole of the two days. I felt like I was just waiting, waiting hoping that nothing went wrong and then when I crossed the line it was just I just couldn't I just couldn't believe it actually happened and it was just pure relief that I'd done it I'd done it all all that hard work everything that we'd put together everything we'd done was worth it and it had all come together in that moment and so there's a level of expectation there that's putting that pressure whether it's from you or from external sources and so on um and then the absence of that, is that we are talking about, the sort of absence of that immediate pressure, going back into winter training and training again mm. after pregnancy. Why am I doing this? I've got a kid now. Am I going to be going for the, the Olympics again or going for the World Championships? Um, what, the, what was that pulse like? Whereas feeling, I'm not sure why I'm doing this. So, yeah, I think after the Olympics, I did have a massive waiver in motivation. And I, I did go back into training, you know, fully into winter training. And we were focused on the World Championships in 2013. And I just, I just kind of felt, yeah, lacking motivation. I had some injuries that year and I just started questioning things a bit and just felt a little bit, you know, finding sessions hard, finding motivation to train hard and then obviously fell pregnant with Reggie and I had Reggie and it was this new sense of right I've got to get back from like really like zero because I changed so much physically and mentally and I was going to try and achieve something that I knew was incredibly hard without having a child and yeah I just felt that huge drive of wanting to to do it and do it properly. Mm. And and so how does that sort of fit into the context? So you obviously won the World Championship in 2015. 2016, where does that sit in your mind now, 2016's sort of experience? Um, I, I think it was a really tough year. So I, 2015 was, was great, you know, winning the World Championships. It was tough on the way to that point, And it was tough after because I'd... I'd had a lot of Achilles problems after having Reggie and all the relaxing hormones and my body changing so much. I just kept having Achilles problem after Achilles problem after Achilles problem. And if it wasn't my right one, it was my left. And I remember just having to drive to Leeds and have scans on it constantly, driving home in floods of tears, thinking, gosh, I'm training. I'm not seeing my son all the time. Mm. And I'm just going to be injured just before the competition anyway. So I'm wasting my time. So I had a complete massive tug in what I was doing I kept questioning I kept thinking should I retire and that's the only time in my career that I've ever felt that I wanted to retire um but me being me and wanting to keep going and not quitting I kept pushing on and obviously I'm glad I did but it was it was really it was two tough years really Mm. two um two two very yeah hard years and in that in that sense getting uh 
feeling like the silver medal was worth it in oh yeah I mean I you know the moment that I retired I was just so happy I just knew that I'd done the right thing I knew that I'd yeah committed to doing two more years it was relatively short term in the grand scheme of things and I retired with no regrets I knew that what I did was right I was able to win two more global medals and yeah I felt that I didn't miss anything with my son and that he's the most rounded amazing child you know Mm. and yeah it it was nice to to look back and not have any regrets because that was one of my biggest worries there was a there was a quote that uh, the style and the class that you delivered that silver medal you sort of developed or I think the word was burnished your reputation even more so for a silver medal um the way that you did it that seemed so classy at the time it was actually no sort of sense of anger I've not not got the gold medal but you were you were alive you were soaking up the moment you're experiencing it you're you were uh pleased for Nafi Tiam who won it yeah she she was absolutely incredible I think always in my mind you know as an athlete you will be at your best for one stage in your career, but there will always be someone that will be better than you and that will pop you off the top. And that is life. And she was that athlete to do that. And she, you know, her performances over those two days felt like my performances in London. They just all went perfectly for her. And she absolutely deserved to win. Of course I wanted to win and it would have been the most amazing ending to my career. But I was just so thankful that I'd actually got to that Olympics in one piece. I completed it. I came away with another medal. I was retiring on my terms. And yeah, it was a really, really emotional time, that championships, because I knew that that was like going to be the last time that I stepped on the track and mm. competed in that way. Um, so yeah, I just remember seeing Ali after my physio and just crying. And we were just, yeah, it was just a really, really emotional time. Wow. Um, it's an amazing reflection. So, so you're um, you saying in 2009, I just settled down, have some kids. But now you're sort of, I mean, you've got uh, this amazing fitness app coming out. So you're you're busy developing business, or you're developing your uh, your brand as well. Um, so, talk to me about the Genis Fitness app and what what you're hoping for. What's the aim? What's what's the angle there? Yeah. So when I was pregnant with Liv, I started thinking about you know the the training that I did and the workouts that I did and how it'd be great to put it into one place for you know everyone to have access to because I felt with Reggie I had this amazing team physio and everyone who guided me with the right exercises to do while I was pregnant how to keep fit and active how to recover and I came back to winning you know world championship Mm -hmm. medal and then with Liv I I was obviously retired and I kind of like had to find my own way back into fitness but I'd had all this previous information to draw upon and I went back to all the exercises I did followed the whole plan basically and had two really great pregnancies and recoveries after so yeah I wanted to create something whereby women could have access to these exercises to know that they're doing the right things to understand how their body's changing and yeah find their way back into a level of fitness that is right for them so yeah so I created this app and it's been a long time coming it's been a lot of hard work but it's been a fantastic thing to do and yeah really exciting project. So it sounds like that's the entry point. So that's the unique selling point that people will come in and and 
stay active. It does, it, pregnancy doesn't mean the end of, a, mm. of your active lifestyle in that sense. Obviously, it's going to change the demand. Mm. Um, but you've also got fitness programs for anybody who wants to stay fit and get active and learn yeah. from you in that sense. Yeah, so the idea was I wanted it to be a journey for particularly pregnant women who want to stay active for the pregnancy, have the support postnatally to know what exercises to do and then find their way back into a full fitness programme. And the full fitness programme was basically inspired by what I do now. You know, I want to keep fit, I want to be active and I still draw upon a lot of the circuit style exercises that I did when I was a full-time athlete because I know that those are the sessions that work really well so I yeah created these 20 minute workouts where like hit style where you kind of just blast your body for 20 minutes hard and and you're done because like myself and so many people just don't have time to fit in an hour session I don't have time to drive to the gym do a session drive back I need to be able to do something that's you know in the living room or out in the garage sort of thing and just be done and, and feel good after so yeah that's what's inspired it really are there any sessions that you hated that are in there and are they labeled <laughs> these are hideous sessions that got imposed upon me but they probably worked well, it's, it is funny, though, because when I retired, Tony was like, oh, you won't run again, you won't exercise. And I was like, I absolutely will. But I needed a good few months to just do nothing and switch off. But actually, now, most of the things that I do training wise are things that I didn't enjoy train doing while I was training. So I still do hill runs which is bizarre because I hated those. Really? Yeah. I don't know anyone who's done hill runs after they've finished but they work though don't oh, they, they? Are, they're so powerful they're, they're so, so good and I can literally take the dog to the woods she can run around up and down the hill with me it takes like half an hour and you just feel that you've worked really hard so I do hill runs like once twice a week and in, in the circuits and I just feel mm. that they're tough but they work so that's why I do them <laughs> that's it just that clinical just do them, just yeah. Do them. Yeah, yeah they've okay. got to be tough I don't do any 800 meter sessions that's for sure <laughs> uh, to be honest if you're doing hill reps you know that's that's probably trumps it in, in many ways uh, last question and what what's your tip to your younger self so if we go back uh, say 15 years what mm. would be if you could time travel back to young Jess Ennis as you were then what would you <laughs> what tip would you give to yourself um I'd probably just tell myself to be more patient and trust in what I'm doing because I think at the time I think most athletes are the same you're very impatient you want to win straight away you want to be at the top straight away and yeah you just want everything to happen instantly and I think that is one of the most important things I learned especially through picking up injuries as well that take your time trust in what you do and be patient and if you do those three things then yeah hopefully success will come after fantastic it's amazing to reflect with you jess because to a certain extent a lot of the support that we've provided to you over the years you actually want to keep a fair distance because it's sort of you plug it into the program and it gets fed through at the appropriate time but actually Mm. divulging and sort of unearthing everything it's not always the healthiest so it's amazing to to reflect with you and hear how you've processed and uh, and also the the ambition that you've got to to kick on um but thank you so much oh thank you
So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jess. If you want to follow Jess further, you can do so on Instagram at Jessica Ennis Hill. And if you're interested in taking Jess up on the offer of her training you through her new app, then go to jennisfitness.com and also on Instagram at wearejennis. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. You can follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram and subscribe through the website. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. All of the details are below in the show notes. So while on this episode, Jess was someone who tried to defy gravity by jumping high. Next time, we've got someone whose performance was defined by singing Defying Gravity from the musical Wicked. Sorry, that was a crap pun, sorry. But next time, I'll share with you an interview with West End star Emma Hatton, who shares some deeply fascinating insights and lessons into what it takes to create and sustain performance in musical theatre. Trust me, you'll want to tune into this one. So please do press subscribe on whichever channel you listen to your podcast on.